just a moment. Uh, let me add one announcement to the announcements that Will made. Um, we're excited that uh, it's it's been two years that uh, Tyler and Shelby Campbell have been uh, attending here at Liberty, and she had a baby. COVID hit, all sorts of things happened. They had started the membership process, and uh, they finished the membership process this morning. I think you have the record for longest membership uh, process at Liberty Baptist. So next Sunday, we'll be uh, voting on receiving them into membership. Many of you are like, they, I didn't know they weren't members. Well, technically, we've got them on a technicality. They aren't. We'll vote them in uh, next Sunday. I've heard their testimony of salvation and baptism, their desire to serve the Lord and follow Him with their family with Caroline and Charlotte and Cade. Now, my children are the cutest children that have ever existed, but their children, I think, might be uh, a really close second place to cutest kids ever. Um, and I just offended all the other parents with uh, children in our church. So they are uniquely uh, cute kids. Exodus chapter 4 this morning. And let me invite you to stand, and we're going to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter, Exodus chapter 4, 18 to, through the end of the chapter, and I, I, I keep saying it every week, and I even say it at home when I'm with my wife. I'm like, I am loving preaching through the book of Exodus. I, I was excited about it. I had a feeling it was going to be good. It's been more gooder than I even thought it was going to be. I have, I have just thoroughly enjoyed preaching through the book of Exodus. Um, Jesus Christ is so clearly evident all through the book of Exodus, and we're going to see him again in this passage this morning. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a little bit of a um, uh, this morning's passage. Like if it was uh, on television, it would be like rated TV 14 or TV MA or something like that, okay? So you'll know what I'm talking about when we read through it. Verse 8, Moses went back to Jethro, not the one from uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, but his father-in-law Jethro, And said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God. In his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. You remember last week, uh, Moses threw down the rod and it became a serpent. And Moses put his hand in his cloak and it became leprous. And and he, uh, he was to pour out water from the Nile and it was to become blood. So God is saying, Remember to do these these miracles. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, verse 24 through 26 is where we get to the rated for mature audiences. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. 
verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Okay, here's the, here's the moment, right? This is the moment Moses has been nervous about. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Father, I pray that the result of our study of this passage this morning would be a congregation of members at Liberty Baptist Church who bow their heads and worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. The parent-child relationship is, is one of the most profound relationships that we are in uh, in our human experience. E- even the, the relationship that a husband has with a wife is still somewhat different than a relationship that we have with our children, right? I mean, you love your spouse in a way that's special and unique and profound, but these kids that like come from us, I mean, there's just a really profound relationship between a mother and her children, a father and his children that's, that's unique, that's special. Every human being understands the parent-child relationship. Like There's no human that escapes somehow the parent-child relationship. Even, even if you were separated from your parents at birth and you never met them, you understand that you had them, right? That's how you got here. And you see that other people have parents that... that so, so everybody understands the parent-child relationship. And even when you have a bad parent-child relationship, there's something in you that knows this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It was supposed to be better than this. I was supposed to enjoy a perfect relationship with my father and my mother, and this isn't perfect. And even people who come from really, really good families, and they have really great relationship with their parents, even those people, and it doesn't matter it, like if there was some way to, to evaluate and figure out who really did have the very best parents in the world, the best human parents in the world, I can promise you that that person could look at their parents and go, yeah, but they still disappointed me in this way, or they sinned against me in this way. We all know what it's like to long for a perfect parent-child relationship. And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see a number of of parent-child relationships over and over and over and over again, we will see parent-child relationships. Specifically, in this passage, we're going to notice a father-son relationship. In fact, the title of the sermon this morning is Father and Son. That's the title of the sermon this morning. Now, I'll use the phrase father and son a number of times this morning, and in no way do I mean to like um, exclude mothers and daughters the, the reason for highlighting father and son is because father and son is going to be used a number of times in this passage. But when I use the idea of father and son um, to, uh, to communicate the relationship that we have, I want you to remember that this is just talking about the love that parents have for, for children. Okay? 
So let's, let's jump in here and begin to figure out what, what, Jeremy, what are you talking about, this father and son relationship? Well, uh, by way of introduction, we're going to just look in verses 18 through 20 again. And Moses has been given these powerful signs you see earlier uh, in chapter 4. Uh, God has met with Moses and given him these signs to take with him in, back into Egypt to show that he has met with God and that God is the king ruler over all of, um, all of Egypt um, and all of uh, Israel, all of God's people. Verse 18 through 20, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. So here, here's a father-son relationship, kind of, right? A father and a son-in-law. Or, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, father and son-in-law. Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And while our first reading through this, it looks like Moses is asking for permission. It kind of seems like Moses is going to his father-in-law and saying, um, hey, if it's okay with you, I'd, I'd, I'd like to go back to Egypt and, and look after my, um, you know, my kinfolk back there in Egypt. What, what, what we understand to be happening here in the customs of the day is that Moses is not just asking for permission. Moses is maybe even an 80-year-old man at this time. Moses is asking for blessing. Moses is asking for the blessing of his father-in-law to take his family and go and do this thing that God has called him to do. And so Moses gets that blessing, right? Uh, it says that uh, Jethro looks at Moses and says, go in peace. And so Moses loads up the minivan and the uh, car top carrier with his wife and sons or a donkey, uh, as the case may be. And, um, and he leaves Midian, this land of Midian, to go. And if you have the maps in the back of your Bible, and while I'm talking, you want to look at those, it's kind of cool to see uh, where um, just to the east there of Egypt, there's a little, what we call the Sinai Peninsula now. That's where the, the, um, the land of Midian would have been. And so uh, Moses would have been there uh, on the Sinai Peninsula, wandering in the desert, taking care of his, um, or not wandering in the desert, but, but living in the desert, taking care of his uh, father-in-law's sheep. And now he is going back after these 40 years. He's going back to Egypt. And Moses is going back a very different man than he went. When he, when he went into the land of Midian, when he, you remember when he left Egypt, he was running, he was scared. Um, he, he was afraid that, that someone may take his life because he had taken the, Egyptian, uh, the Egyptians' life. And so Moses is now headed back to to Egypt, and he's going back a very different man. God has used the circumstances of life to change him. And before we even get into the meat of the, the passage here, let me ask you, how has God changed you? What kinds of things does God use to change you? And I think many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we would realize that the things that God has used to change us has been the challenging and difficult circumstances of life. And sometimes, in fact, often, it's the challenging circumstances of life over the course of a long time. And it's not just, I heard a sermon once and then I was humbled forever after, or my family went through tragedy for three days and, and then we came out of it. But often the thing that God uses to really affect us, to really change us, are the things that take months, that turn into years, that turn into decades, that change us, change us significantly, change us fundamentally, change us powerfully. I, I heard a man once say, my wife has been married to several different men, 
but all of them were me. What he meant by that, and obviously that goes for, you know, that goes either way, husbands to wives or wives to husbands. What he meant by that is through the course of years, God has changed me. I'm not, I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And friends, sometimes some of us look at ourselves in the mirror figuratively or literally, and we realize, yeah, I, I'm not as awesome now as I thought I would be. This is, a, this is a very stark realization that I regularly have and think, I, I kind of thought I would be more awesome as a 43-year-old than I am. I'm, I'm pretty average. I'm just on a good day. Um, we, we, we do change, and God uses the circumstances of life and time to change us. And so let me ask you this, and I'm not even in this, this is like the pre-sermon. This is just, just uh, as I was thinking about how God had changed Moses uh, during his time in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, have you become a more useful tool for God to use over the course of your life? And, and here, here's what made Moses more useful. The simple passage of time is not, what God, it, it, it is not alone sufficient to make you more useful to God. You might be like, well, I'm 60 now, and I used to be 20, and now I'm certainly more useful to God. No, that's, that's not necessarily the case. Moses met with God in Midian. God came to Moses, and Moses got a very clear picture of who he was after being humbled in Egypt and running off into the desert and being this nomad, if you will, Moses had become humbled. He saw who he was, and then at the burning bush, Moses saw who God is, the great I am. And when Moses saw I am for who he is, Moses was changed. And brothers and sisters, what will make us, what, what grows us in our lives, what changes us to become more useful people in the hands of God is seeing who we are in light of who God is. Do you know God? Have you met with God? Are you being changed to become more like Jesus? Because as you grow and as you age and as the passage of time happens in your life, you're spending time with God and now you realize, yeah, I'm, I'm not the awesome hero that I thought I would be. In fact, life has humbled me and often life humbles you through humiliation. We want humility, but we don't want to be humiliated. But often, God uses humiliation to be what causes, what brings about greater humility in our lives. And we realize, okay, God, now I see who you are, and I see who I am in relation to that, and I just want to be used by you. This is where Moses finds himself 40 years later with his wife and children packed up on the family donkey headed back to Egypt. As we look at these father-son relationships now, I want us first to look at the first relationship, and it, I, I, I don't think our pro presenter is working here this morning. So point number one is this. The first father-son relationship that we see this morning is God and Israel. God the Father and Israel. In verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, and the end of verse 22 is incredibly important. It says, Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. What is, what is that even about? Why is God telling Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel 
is my firstborn son. In what God, God does not have a body. God does not have offspring. Um, how, how does God refer to this nation of people, right? And remember, Israel got their name from Jacob. When Jacob's name was changed to Israel, now that they as a people group, they as a people group have taken upon themselves the, the name of Israel. So it's referring to these hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. This nation is known as the firstborn of God. Why are they referred to as the firstborn of God? Well, that word firstborn is used throughout the Bible to refer to a position of rank. It's, it, it's like saying Israel is number one. Of all the nations in the world, I've chosen Israel. They're number one. They're my people. I am their God and they're my people. Israel is the firstborn. Of all the nations, they're the firstborn. And as you read through the Bible, that phrase firstborn is often used that way. Someone is the firstborn from the dead, or Jesus Christ is the firstborn, or we as God's people are the firstborn. And it's just referring, it doesn't mean that you were born before other people were born. It means this position of, of rank and importance. And so God is saying, when you, Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh, Egypt is not my firstborn. And Pharaoh would have thought that Egypt was the first, that if there was any nation that would take first priority and first rank in, in any God's eyes, it would be us, the Egyptians. We are, we are God's people. I mean, come on, look at us. We've got to be, whatever deity is out there, Egypt would certainly be the firstborn. Look how powerful we are. Look at all that we can do. Look at all that we've provided to the world. Look at all of our advancement. Look at the fertility of our, uh, of our land and what we've been able to accomplish with the buildings that we've built and the financial status that we've accrued and the political power that we possess over all the other nations. Look at us. Does it sound like any other nation that I might be describing? Yeah. yeah. But what God is saying is, no, no, no Egypt, no America. I have a firstborn nation. And it's Israel. Israel is the firstborn. And this is, this is, this is going to be incredibly important um, throughout the, the entirety of this story. This is why God is delivering them from the hand of Egypt. God chose the people of Israel. And do you know why he chose Israel? Why, why did God go to this guy named Abraham, right? I mean, because Jacob was a great-grandson of Abraham. Why did God find Abraham and choose Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel? Do you know why? We're not told. Abraham very likely was in a pagan land, Ur of the Chaldees. He probably wasn't a follower of God when God first chose Abraham to be his follower, to be his man. Friends, this is how God works in the world. This is how God why did God choose you to be part of his family? Because he's a God of love and a God who chooses. God is sovereign. He was sovereign in his selection of Abraham. He was sovereign in his selection of Israel. And we see here, and this is kind of a little bit of a side note, but it's important for us. This theme is going to be repeated. We're going to talk about it more as we progress through the book of Exodus. But you see in verse 21 a, really, um, a, a phrase that really catches our attention. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Where God actually says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, but I, Yahweh, the great I am, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart 
so that Pharaoh will not let the people go. And then you, this, this idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened is mentioned 20 times just in the book of Exodus. And sometimes the phrase is used that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes the phrase is used, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And other times the phrase is used, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And we're not told who takes responsibility. Sometimes God seems to be the one taking responsibility for hardening Pharaoh's heart. And other times Pharaoh himself is the one who is is, um, named as being the one responsible. But friends, the thing that we need to learn here is, that God is the one who's absolutely in sovereign control of who will be his firstborn nation, and he is also in sovereign control of the kings of the world. The most powerful individual on the planet at the time is this Pharaoh of Egypt, and God is saying, look, as I'm working out all, as I'm doing all of these things, Pharaoh is in my absolute, complete, sovereign plan and control. And you might say, well, it's not, it's not fair that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. And like I said, we're going to talk about this a whole lot more later um, in, um, uh, in, in f- further uh, later sermons as we deal with uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But do you remember that when God wants to harden someone's heart in Romans chapter 1, what is necessary for God to harden someone's heart? The only thing that God has to do in order for your heart to be hardened is for him to take his hands off and let you have what you want. We, we are Ephesians chapter 2. I was talking about it with some uh, friends this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, we, we are sinners. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We don't want God. And all God has to do to harden Pharaoh's heart is leave Pharaoh alone and let Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wants to do, which is not let the people of Egypt or let the people of Israel go. And so we see, first of all, this, that God, God has chosen Israel and God has entered into a relationship with Israel through a covenant. Now, some of you are going to have to scroll back in your head here for a second and remember, what, how does God enter into this covenant with the people of Israel? Some of you may remember the really strange scene back in the book of Genesis where God brings Abraham, and Abraham goes to sleep, and in this dream, God takes these animals and cuts them in half and sets them on either side, and God walks through the middle of them, and Abraham walks through the middle of them, and you're like, what all is going on here? Well, in the most simplistic terms, here's what's happening. God is establishing a covenant, a promise. The closest thing that we have is the marriage relationship that we have with each other, with a husband and wife, and God is saying, "Um, Abraham, I'm entering into a relationship with you, and if anyone breaks the covenant... What has happened to these animals and the blood that's been shed will happen to the person who breaks this covenant. So, so God enters into this relationship where Israel is named as the firstborn through this, through this, this bloody covenant. Now, bloody covenants are going to be mentioned over and over again throughout the Bible. But let me um, carry on um, here in this passage. and We're going to see a few more of them right here in these verses. God and Israel. This is the first, um, this is the first father-son relationship that's mentioned in this passage. Second of all, though, we need to see at the end of verse 23 that there is a father-son that are mentioned at the end of verse 23. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I, God, will kill your Pharaoh, your firstborn son. Now, again, you have to think about what's going on at the time that this is being written. The time of Egypt and the Pharaohs and their progeny 
uh, uh, the Pharaoh and his firstborn son. I mean, the firstborn son was absolutely going to be the one to take the, the throne from him. Of all of the Pharaoh's children, his firstborn son, look, I mean, there was no political correctness back then. Right? Daughters were relatively insignificant. Other sons were relatively insignificant. But it was just the firstborn son that got all the praise, all the attention. So, Jay, you get everything. Abraham, sorry, tough luck. Girls, I don't really even care about you. That would have kind of been the general attitude of Pharaoh's. Now, my children know better than that. Um, but, you know, if you're the kids of Pharaoh and you're like, hey, but I was the secondborn son. Well, tough luck. Right? I mean, you kind of get to live in the palace and that's as good as you're going to get. Um, but the firstborn son meant everything to this Pharaoh. And God says to Pharaoh, if you don't do what I tell you to do, there will be consequences. And the consequences are this. Death. If you disobey my command, there will be death. The, the consequences of sin is death. Does this sound like a Bible verse to you? Sin, when it is finished, brings forth Death, brothers and sisters, what the world faces, what each of us face when we are without Christ in the world, the problem that we face is when we die, we will be separated from God for eternity in hell. The, the kind of punishment that Pharaoh was faced with, this death being brought into his family because of disobedience, would be carried out. And, and we're going we're gonna to get to the conclusion of the story later in the book of Exodus. But this morning, God, without any hesitation, tells Moses, you go tell Pharaoh that disobedience, his disobedience will bring death into his family. So we see a father-son relationship here and the relationship with Pharaoh and son. Number three, number three, the third relationship that we see here is in verses 24 through 26. Those are weird verses, Right? I mean, let, let's just be honest. We get to verses 24 through 26, and we think, all right, Jeremy, go ahead. I want to hear you explain this in a family-friendly way. You've got a bunch of kids in here, and what exactly is going on? This, it is. It's a really crazy passage. There are a lot of questions about this passage. You can read a bunch of different commentaries, and they explain a lot of the phrases in this passage differently. First of all, there's questions about, in verse 24, it says, on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And there's no, that, that pronoun, there's no definite modifier. It seems to be indicating Moses. But some people wonder if it was actually the son that was born to Moses in Zipporah. We're not exactly sure who the him is referring to, though I would agree with the, the majority of scholarship saying it's probably referring to Moses. And then this idea of touching Moses' feet with this foreskin, what's going on there? there there's, there's a lot of um, interpretation around what it means to touch Moses' feet with it. There's a lot of disagreement on a lot of different things and a lot of just conjecture. What exactly is happening here? Well, instead of trying to figure out what all those unique phrases mean, I do think that there are a couple of things that are really clear here that all of us can agree upon. We can look at these verses and go, that's clear. I can see it right here in this passage. And while it might seem abrupt, doesn't it kind of seem abrupt? Like, all, like where did this even come from? Mo Moses, you'll remember, is the one who actually writes the first five books of the Bible. And so here, Moses is the one who's actually writing this story down. And he gets to the end of verse um, uh, 20, uh, 23, right, where he's writing about Pharaoh and his firstborn. And then all of a sudden, in verse 24, 
Moses is writing this story. And I actually don't think it's abrupt when you stop and think about it. Moses is writing about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's son, and now Moses is writing about himself and his son. So I don't think there's any abruptness here. And in fact, what I think Moses is doing, I think Moses is saying, look, just like God takes seriously Pharaoh and Pharaoh's son, there's obedience that's demanded of Moses as well. And just like the potential for death was going to be visited on Pharaoh's family, the potential for death is being visited upon Moses' family right here, right now. I believe God wants us to see that he's just addressed Pharaoh and son, but Moses is not above the need to be obedient to God as well. And so what happens here? It's clear that, that God shows up and maybe Moses gets sick or in some way maybe an angel comes and visits and says, you're in big trouble, Buster, and your life is going to be required of you. And it appears that this all happens within just moments. This isn't dragged out over the course of days because we get the idea that Zipporah either sees Moses sick or hears this angel message to Moses, and Zipporah immediately realizes what's wrong and how to fix it. Zipporah immediately runs to their son um, and performs this uh, ritual of circumcision upon their son, And once this is done, God's wrath against Moses is abated and and goes away. And and it's clear that this has been, um, uh, uh, yeah, verse 26. "So So he, God, let him, Moses, so God let Moses alone. So it's obvious that there were things that Moses and Zipporah knew that we have to imply from this passage. God had, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, it says this, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We're going to talk more in future weeks about the significance of the son, like what circumcision, what's up with that? Why is that a sign of the covenant, God? Why, like, couldn't we have just gotten tattoos or something or all changed our last name? Like, what's going on with this thing here? Why are you using this as a sign of the covenant? We'll talk about that in future weeks. But, but here, it's obvious that this was, this was an obedient, uh, an act of obedience that identified Moses and his family with the people of God. And this son had not been brought into the family of God through this physical sign. And that was Moses' disobedience. And this is why I think Moses was the one who was being afflicted here. As the father in the family, it was his responsibility to make sure that his children were following the things of the one true God and that his sons would have been circumcised. And so as Moses is in some way physically incapacitated, Zipporah knows what to do. I know why this is happening. Moses, we've talked about this. I've been telling you, right, you can imagine a husband and wife relating in this way. I've been telling you, we can't just wait on this. You were supposed to have done this, right? And I don't know how old the son is here. Moses has been in the wilderness for 40 years. 
I'm a little disturbed when I think about how old might the son be. I don't know. We don't know. Let's just, just for our own imagination, we'll just pretend it's an infant because I sure hope it was. And, and so now Zipporah knows, I know what's supposed to happen here. And Zipporah goes and takes care of business. And then whatever this strange custom of touching Moses' feet with it, if it was indeed Moses' feet, there's some kind of symbolic nature where Zipporah says, you're a husband of blood to me. This was supposed to have been done. I've taken care of it. And God's wrath abates. Now, notice here, this is the coolest thing of this whole story. This is what I want you to see. You're not going to remember all the details of this story, and I don't even understand all the details of this story, but here's the thing that I want us to see incredibly clearly. God, God's man disobeyed, and God shows up with a death sentence. Blood was shed, and the death sentence goes away. God's man, Moses, disobeyed. God comes and says, your life is going to be, I'm going to destroy you. Blood is spilled, and the covering of, the, the blood being spilled means that Moses' punishment goes away. Does that sound familiar? We disobey God. God comes and says, all those who die apart from me are going to be separated from me, eternal death forever. God sends his son Jesus and blood is spilt and through the shedding of that blood, there is the remission of sins. So we see here, even in this really strange, one of the strangest passages in the Bible, we see the gospel beautifully on display. Sin is met with a punishment being uh, eternal, or you know, the death of Moses, blood is shed and, uh, and forgiveness is granted. So, so let's... Let, Whatever else is going on there, we see that clearly. We see, we see this beautiful picture that, um, that God forgives when there is the shedding of blood. What was the way at the end of verse 23, if, if Pharaoh's firstborn son was going to live, do you remember later in the book of Exodus what God tells the people of Egypt and Israel that they have to do in order for their firstborn sons to be spared? They have to shed blood and be covered with their doorposts being covered in blood or their children would die, their firstborn sons would die. Moses' son, uh, uh, Moses was going to die, but the, but the blood was shed, and this is what grants forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, as we are reading through this passage, I'm not making things up, I'm not putting things there that aren't there. These things are clear in this passage because we have the New Testament, we can understand what, what uh, God is pointing us ahead toward, that there has to be the shedding of blood in order for sins to be forgiven, in order for sins to be remitted. And so while, um, w- while it's not direct in this passage, it's implied, it brings us to our fourth father-son relationship, the relationship of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. This is point number, this is uh, father-son relationship number four, right? Number one was God and Israel. Number two was Pharaoh and son. Number three was Moses and son. Now number four is God and son. Jesus was the perfect son, and he came to live and to die for us because we failed, because Moses failed, and Pharaoh failed, and Israel failed. But Jesus came, and he was obedient, even unto his death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2 makes it clear. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We'll look over here at a cross-reference. Romans 5, 12. We're going to read a few of those verses here in just a second. So, so 
Pharaoh was supposed to obey God. He disobeyed God. His son dies. Moses was supposed to obey God. He disobeyed God. His son almost dies. You and I are supposed to obey God. We disobey God all the time. So, so what happens to those who disobey God but don't have the obedience of God's Son to cover them? Well, they're separated from God forever. But just, just like there was uh, one man who sinned and sin entered into the world, there was one Son who came and lived perfectly and life is brought into the world. Look in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, you remember who that was, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Jump down to verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who's, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, so we die because of the sin of Adam and then our own sin. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So God the Father sends his son, Jesus Christ. And where we as the sons and daughters of our fathers fail and sin and deserve punishment, the son of the one true God comes and he lives a perfectly righteous life and he dies a sacrificial death. He does this by, sh by living his life and then shedding his own blood. God did not punish Moses with death by giving him away by blood sacrifice to avoid it. And God would give Pharaoh away through a blood sacrifice to avoid death. And Pharaoh would not take that way. And God gives all of humanity a way out through a blood sacrifice. And that blood sacrifice is his own son's blood, Jesus Christ. So Pharaoh and son, Moses and son, God and son. There's one other father-son relationship that I want us to talk about, and that would be your relationship as a child to God the Father. You see, without Christ, you and I are enslaved in Egypt. In Romans chapter 5, we are of our father Adam. We're of our father the devil. We deserve punishment and separation. We are the ones who figuratively are enslaved in Egypt. We are under the taskmaster of Satan and sin. And we need to be, we need to be delivered. We need to be delivered from our Egypt. We need good news to come to us. And that good news has, it has come to us through the work of Jesus Christ, God's son. So will you be like Moses or will you be like Pharaoh? Will you look to the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins or not? Back, back to Exodus chapter 4. We're still not quite done with this passage. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. I'm sorry, go into the wilderness, yeah, to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which, we had, which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And Moses went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. 
Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. In verse 31, I have two words that are circled there. The first word is the word believed. And the second word is the word worship. God's people, when they heard of what God had done for them, when they heard that the God of Israel, the God, the great I am, had visited the people of Israel and seen their affliction and that there was one coming who was going to deliver them, they believed the message and they worshiped. Friends, that's the only right response to the message of salvation. See, the message that Moses and Aaron showed up with is God is aware of your captivity. God knows that you are in captive, uh, captivity here in Egypt and God is sending a deliverer to come and to rescue you from the hands of the Egyptians. And so when Moses and Aaron show up with that message, they proclaim that message to the people of Israel who are captured there in the land of Egypt. And when they hear, we're going to be delivered, there's a rescuer who is coming, they believed that message and they worshiped him. Friends, if we are Israel and the world is Egypt, which that's definitely the picture that we get from the Bible, that God's people are the nation of Israel and the world around us is, is, is Egypt. When you hear the message proclaimed that God has seen you in your captivity, God sees that you are powerless to rescue yourself. In fact, your disobedience will bring certain death upon yourself. But there is one who has come, and he lived the life that you were supposed to live, but you failed to live. And he died the death that you were supposed to die, but now don't have to. And in fact, he's even been raised from the dead three days later to show that he has conquered sin. He has conquered Egypt. He is the great deliverer. When you, when you hear that message, friends, the, the only right response is to believe it and to worship. Unfortunately, there are many who hear that message and they think, oh, I'm not really, I'm, you know, I, I'm not really in captivity. I, I don't think my life is so bad. I, in fact, I kind of like being my own Pharaoh. I like, I like Egypt and I like being in charge. But friends, there's coming a day because of your disobedience that death will visit you. And the only thing that can stand between that, you and that punishment from God is the work of Jesus Christ, the blood sacrifice that he has offered. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, the right response for you is to believe in the message of salvation through Jesus Christ and to worship him. And if you're a believer here this morning, the only right response for you is to remember and to believe and to worship Verse 31 is the response that people are to have when they hear that there is a deliverer. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. Usually I begin my sermon with a main point. I kind of wanted to conclude the sermon this morning with this main point. God the Father made a blood sacrifice of his son so that you could become a son or a daughter. We're talking about fathers and sons. I'm going to repeat that a couple, time, a couple more times. I know some of you are writing it down. God the Father 
made a blood sacrifice of his son so that you could become a son, a son or a daughter. These fathers and sons here, we see, we learn different lessons from them here from the, the book, uh, from this chapter here in the book of Exodus. But the thing that we see most clearly is that God the Father made a blood sacrifice of his son. That, blood, that phrase blood sacrifice is important, right? Israel became a nation when Abraham had went through that pathway of a bloody sacrifice. Pharaoh is being warned that if you don't have a blood sacrifice over your doorpost, that you will give a blood sacrifice of your own son. Moses here is being threatened with death, lest the blood sacrifice come from within his own family. Right? Over and over we see the necessity of a blood sacrifice. But friends, God the Father made a blood sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I could become a son or a daughter. So now let me ask you to do like the people of Israel and bow your heads. And we're going to take a few moments here this morning to believe and worship together. You've noticed that we have the, the plates for communion here before us this morning. I'm going to ask the deacons if they would come forward to help me serve this in just a moment. We've got, we've got the elements, this bread. Yeah, you can come, come on forward now, uh, brothers. Um, we've got the elements here in front of us. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, you just, just, just think here for a moment and listen. We're remembering the blood sacrifice that God the Father offered of His Son, Jesus Christ. We have bread that is broken. We have uh, juice that reminds us of the blood sacrifice of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to play on the piano, and the, the deacons will distribute uh, these elements here. And, and as she plays, let me, let me encourage you to take just a moment and make sure that, that you and your heart are right before God. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, right now would be a wonderful time for you to make that right with Him. If, if, if you know that you're not walking with the Lord, that there's sin in your life that you are holding on to, and you have not, and you're not yet ready to let that go, then let me ask you to let the elements go by. Don't, don't partake unworthily. Uh, if you are here this morning and you're not a part of Liberty Baptist Church, but you are regularly walking with the Lord and you're part of a local church and you're in good standing, a good standing member of a local church, then we do invite you to um, take this along with us. But there will be a number of you who, who just let the elements go by and that's perfectly okay. So again, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, the piano will play and we'll distribute the elements. <laughs> 